0: Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content.
1: Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast.
0: Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today I'm joined by Professor Art Cardin. Dr. Art Cardin is an Associate Professor of Economics at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and a Senior Research Fellow with the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, a Research Fellow with the Independent Institute, and a Senior Fellow with the Beacon Center of Tennessee. He's also a regular contributor to Forbes.com, where he has recently written about the trade wars that America is currently dabbling in. And that is why he is on to talk with us today. Art, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So one of the things that Trump promised all of his voters was that there was going to be so much winning that they would be we would be sick of winning. And now Trump's trying to win the trade war, and I'm pretty sick of it. So uh, maybe he fulfilled one promise in an inadvertent way there. He's trying to talk tough on trade. What's he trying to do? Like, what base does he appeal to? Because I kind of just took it as understood that more tariffs like, i mean these are conservatives we shouldn't be for tariffs so who's he trying to appeal to like is is it
1: just tough talk what's the deal we're kind of in the same boat here uh you and me because i too am sick of all the winning oh there's been so much winning but indeed if this is winning i would hate to see what losing looks like um yeah, that's a fair point yeah I mean, the thing is the thing is so that economic populism is never going to play poorly um in a lot of cases on either the right or the left there's hardly anything that you can't blame foreigners for and get a lot of political traction out of it. Foreigners don't vote. Foreigners look different from us. They talk different from us. They eat things that are kind of different from us. And here I'm like I'm, I'm using us to mean like Trump's base or uh, when the, the Democrats are in power, sort of like the standard left base of like labor unions and things like that. Foreigners are like weird. And you know, they they have these traditions and ideas and practices that we don't really understand. And they're just really easy to blame stuff on. And I think that's a big part of what what Trump goes for, a big part of, and not just Trump, but what politicians go for in general is finding really, really easy scapegoats. And foreigners are very, very easy scapegoats. Again, they might have cultural practices. We don't like we, quote, regular Americans don't fully understand. And uh, again, they don't vote in American elections. So you're probably not going to lose a whole lot of elections by blaming foreigners for stuff.
0: Why do we even call it a trade war? I mean, it. it it's kind of weird to me that you think of countries as trade, as warring in sort of trade. It doesn't seem to me if, if you really kind of evaluate it economically that it's even a war to begin with.
1: No, not at all. It's an oxymoron. The idea of a trade war is really kind of silly because, as we know, in any exchange, both parties enter into it because they expect to be made better off. I'm going to kind of I'm going to digress for just a second and chase this rabbit just a tad because it illustrates it illustrates the media importance of diversity diversity of all different kinds. And there's almost sort of like a, I don't want to say a a sad irony to it, but um, the opportunities to gain from trade are biggest, the larger our differences are with our trading partners. So by trying to shut off trade with people who are quote, not like us, we're not just shooting ourselves in the foot, like we're really shooting ourselves in the foot. By using a bigger gun. Yeah, to shoot yeah, ourselves yeah, 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 I think, yeah, yeah, I think it's a very it's a very good way to put it. It's going to hurt more. Right. Yeah. So, so people don't enter into an exchange unless they expect to be made better off. The opportunities to gain from trade are largest. The bigger the differences are between potential trading partners. And so the sad irony of all of this is we're we're really, really impoverishing ourselves by blaming foreigners for stuff and entering into this quote unquote trade war. I mean a war one party wins and another party loses in trade both parties win so I don't think I don't think trade war is a uh, is an apt description of what's going on is
0: it also a little overly collectivist to say that countries are having a trade war or just countries trade I mean isn't it that you and I you know you and I could trade we could trade goods or services right. with each other but then if I'm doing business with somebody from another country I'm doing I'm trading with them I'm not trading with their country
1: Right yeah it's 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 very misleading i think to think in terms of national aggregates i mean they're useful for some things they're useful for keeping track of of certain you know different macroeconomic magnitudes and things like that but to talk about gains from trade accruing to this country or that country or whatever Obscures the more fundamental point, which is that these are individuals who are doing the trading. These are people, you, me, others, who are buying and selling because they expect to be made better off. There's no, there's no entity called America that trades with another entity called Canada or another entity called Turkey or another entity called China. There are people who live in the United States of America who trade with people who live in China or who live in Turkey or who live in Canada. And they're better off as a result. We can calculate the balance of payments, but that doesn't really tell us a whole lot about who's winning and who's losing from trade. What do people mean when they say, and,
0: and you can kind of elaborate on this like you would if you were in sort of an econ 101 class here. You're, you're certainly welcome to do that. And I know you're capable. Sure. Uh, what, is, what do people mean? Uh, what do economists mean? What do politicians mean when they uh, say that America has a trade deficit? Uh, if, if both people, I mean, the, the simplicity of it just is like, well, if I'm trading with you mm-hmm. and it, right. w- is there a point at which you are you have a trade deficit with with me, Doug, or how, do, how does that work? I mean, there, there's obviously
1: math involved and, and things like that. But give us a little bit of that. Right. Well, see, I, I don't know really, that you and I have really traded much with each other. So, so we so I don't know. I don't have a trade deficit with you. You don't have a trade deficit with me, which is, I guess, hunky dory in this, this sort of big, broad perspective. I will tell you this, and this really makes me angry. We have a trade deficit with Waffle House. Our family runs a massive trade deficit with Waffle House. Every week, we go to Waffle House and we buy waffles and bacon and coffee and things like that. And then the next week, we go and we buy waffles and bacon and coffee. And the next week, waffles and bacon and coffee. And week after week after week after week, we spend money at Waffle House. And the people at Waffle House never, ever, ever buy anything from us. We run this massive trade deficit with Waffle House. Now then, is it accurate to say that we'd be better off if Waffle House were, to, were buying things from us? Well, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of screwy to think that way. A lot of economists run to an example like this when explaining the irrelevance of the trade deficit. We run trade deficits with grocery stores. We run trade deficits with uh, barbers. We run trade deficits with restaurants. We run trade deficits with all sorts of different organizations. And the fact that I run a trade deficit with Waffle House is per se not important. Does it become important at any given level? Well, there is one sense in which you could say that it's not a trade deficit per se. I think that becomes important, but if you're consuming too much, say, like so if we're if we're if we're spending all of our income at Waffle House and then some, then that might be a pro- that might be problematic. But in that case, it's because in that case we're not saving enough. It's not that we're running a trade deficit, per se, with, uh, with Waffle House. The other side of the trade deficit, so in the national income accounts, you have what's called the current account, and the biggest part of the current account is the trade deficit or the trade surplus, and then you have the capital account. Um, the biggest part of that is investment flows. So these are, these are, are different sides of the same coin. With a couple of slight adjustments, the current account deficit, so the trade deficit, is going to be precisely offset by a capital account surplus. So if we're running a trade deficit, well, foreigners, foreigners, are, they're going to want to buy American dollars for some reason. They're either going to want to buy American goods and services, or they're want, going to want to invest in American assets. So the trade deficit means that we're spending more money on, on consumable goods or on, on goods and services abroad, than we're selling to the rest of the world. But what are foreigners doing with those dollars? They're investing them in the United States. So Alabama, where I live, for example, has a fairly large automobile industry right now. Um, over the last 20 or 25 years, we've welcomed in Mercedes, Hyundai, Honda, and a bunch of other foreign car manufacturers. But where are they getting those dollars? Well, they're getting those dollars by buying them from people who have sold stuff. To Americans, you'd be saying pretty much exactly the same thing if you're a politician and you started talking about running record capital surpluses rather than record trade deficits, which I think raises an interesting research question. Why don't politicians do that? And quite frankly, I don't have an answer.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty interesting. That's a good example to kind of bring it literally bring it home to like where you live and like what's happening and, and kind of give some feet to that. Some of the people who are pro tariff would argue that and I've heard this from people who aren't really like deep into economics. Right. These are people who and again, it, I'm sure there's a little bit of the like afraid of foreigners or or they're different or whatever. Maybe there's some of that in there, but maybe this is happening and we could just take the argument at face their argument at face value. They argue for it that the other countries are manipulating currency or they're imposing tariffs like China. China's the big bad wolf right now. So in a rigged system, if that's what's happening and the only way to keep you know, our heads above water, so to speak, is through tariffs. I mean, how would you respond to sort of that
1: argument, that 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 concern even? So in pretty much any scenario for any country, it is to their advantage to be a free trader, no matter what no matter what anyone else in the world is doing. Let's suppose that China is, in fact, manipulating the currency in order to keep exports in order to keep their exports artificially cheap. Okay, well, that's fantastic, because that means we get cheaper stuff from China. and That, that frees up resources in the United States to do other stuff with. In the case of something like tariffs, it's important to remember that a tariff is a tax. And specifically, a tariff is a tax on people who are buying stuff that's produced in foreign countries. So what happens... When say the Chinese impose a tariff on American goods, is they're taxing their own people? Yeah, you know, they're hurting us to us uh, to su- to some extent. But the right response to another country's tariffs is just to remain free traders. The right response, the right response to any other any other country's trade policy, pretty much is to be a free trader. If China say imposes tariffs on American goods, there's an economist in the early 20th century named Joan Robinson who said, well, if they brick up their harbor then the right response is not to brick up our own. So we're still better off if we maintain a policy of free trade, regardless of what other countries do.
0: Is China raising the price of goods going to the U.S.? Is that what
1: the uh, ta- the tariffs are doing? Yeah, tariffs. tariffs are making goods and services more expensive in the U.S. Okay, right. Uh, Before we started recording, we were talking about jury duty, Uh, and I was just on jury duty, and one of my fellow jurors works for uh, a company – and I can talk about this now because the case has been settled – but one of my fellow jurors worked for a company that made fire extinguishers and fire extinguisher systems and was talking about big increases in the price of of steel cylinders – they get used to produce um, fire equipment. And this is kind of interesting because it's an Alabama-based manufacturer and a lot of other American-based manufacturers of fire protection equipment who are seeing their costs increase because of tariffs on steel, because of tariffs on aluminum. The Big lesson or if there's one big lesson in economics, there are many, but one big lesson in economics, according to Henry Hazlitt, according to Frederick Bastiat, is you have to look and see what is not immediately or readily apparent. And it's extremely easy to look at a steel tariff and then look at a steel mill and say, well, look, there's Billy Bob in the steel mill and he's got a job and that's fantastic and we're happy for Billy Bob because he has higher earnings. It's harder to connect the dots and say, well, there's Jim over there who was making and installing fire protection systems, but now those are far more expensive, so he doesn't have as many opportunities as he used to. I think solar panels provide a pretty good example of this logic. A lot of the value added in solar panels in the United States is not in manufacturing, it's in installation. So by imposing tariffs on Chinese manufactured solar panels, yeah, we encourage Americans to produce solar panels here in the United States, but again, most of the opportunities in solar and things like that are in installation. So we make solar panels a lot more expensive. Fewer people buy solar panels and that reduces the number of opportunities out there for people who would be installing all of these solar panels,
0: yeah. but art meanwhile, we're signaling to Mother Earth that we love her well, that's
1: that's an interesting. yeah, so <laughs> that's that's a different podcast. ok. that's probably yeah, that's probably a different podcast. Yeah, right, right. Uh, i i I want desperately for the Tesla wall to work. And uh, I've, I've said before the uh, by God I want my my app dispatch, yeah. solar powered driverless car, but um, right. again like I said that's probably a different yeah right that's, that's, probably, so, that's probably that's probably a but, different episode you know it's interesting
0: any libertarian who's read hazlitt or bastiat or have read people who explain what you just explained that sometimes it's easy it's it, it's not easy to see second order effects and what is the unseen and things like that and yet the very first thing right. that i often see or think of is those second order effects and so i you know for any listeners out there who have yeah. kind of already you know you hear about Tariffs and your instant thought is to go to those second order effects. Congratulations, because you're already thinking. I think like an economist, right? Um, and so, yeah. So, but but here's the thing. So Trump apparently knows that this is hurting people because I can't believe I actually read a headline, and this is true. It's not just a headline from fake news that Trump is going to give money to farmers who are hurt by the tariffs that he imposed. Right.
1: Yep. Twelve billion. Just. Because it's just lying around to help farmers that are that are hurt by tariffs. Um, this is this is piling like it's piling bad idea up on bad idea. But I think when we when we step back a little bit and look at um, sort of what this tells us about social processes writ large, you can't have. And this is this is why. So um, people ask me like, why are you a libertarian? Um, I, I'm not a libertarian cause I think markets are perfect or because I think that there's like this sort of magic, Liberty dust that will get rid of all the bad things. Rather, I think markets are super duper imperfect and people are super duper imperfect. And probably the last thing in the world that I want to do is give lots of very imperfect, fundamentally fallen and evil people, a lot of power. And one of the reasons for that is the fact that it's impossible to have like one surgical intervention that fixes a particular problem. So again, let's take the, well, let's, let's take the, the the tariff example that you just mentioned. Okay. So we impose tariffs because we want to make America great again by protecting the steel industry and the aluminum industry. Awesome. So we produce more steel, we produce more aluminum, America's great again, right? Well, not so fast. We've increased, uh, first of all, we've increased The cost of steel and aluminum using goods, which hurts anyone who uses those products. Second, one of the things that foreigners are going to use those dollars to buy will be agricultural goods produced in the United States. So we're able to export fewer agricultural goods and input costs are increasing. So we've created problems for farmers. So what this does then is it creates a political constituency looking for another solution to fix their like sort of particular little branch of the problem. Now, to the credit, a lot of farm organizations are saying, look, we'd rather you just got rid of the tariffs, but we impose a tariff in order to help the steel and aluminum industries. This hurts farmers. So we have to come up with some sort of policy to help farmers. Okay, so we're gonna hand them $12 billion in. I forget exactly the structure of it, but loans and loan guarantees and things like that. Okay, fantastic. Well, where are these resources going to come from? Well, they've got to come from alternative uses. Maybe we have to raise taxes. Okay, so now we have a battle in Congress over taxes. We raise taxes. Well, some people now don't have, uh, their incomes aren't as high as they would otherwise be. So maybe now they need more, more income assistance or something like that. You see, this just creates a snowball of intervention upon intervention upon intervention upon intervention. That doesn't have a clear stopping point. So one of the things that kind of surprised me was that these
0: tariffs and the Im- the impact of these tariffs on on American farmers actually happened relatively quickly. I mean, usually I, you, you would kind of expect this kind of thing to take some time to sort of play out. I mean, that's why that, that is why they call them, you know second order effects. Uh, But is is that typical? I mean, is it just, is this just a big example? And so it was very obviously hurting a certain constituency or were we seeing something play out faster than these kinds of things typically do?
1: Well, I, I, I don't know enough about it to offer much more than just sort of semi-informed speculation. But my, my understanding is that um, the Trump administration is looking toward the midterm elections. And seeing that, well, we have these tariffs that hurt farmers in states where the farm vote is going to be really, really important in the midterm election. So, the, you know, this aid to farmers is kind of a way. It's been argued it's kind of a way of smoothing potentially rough seas during the midterm election.
0: Hmm. Okay. So it's yeah. so it's
1: it's so it's it, it's a different kind of political responsiveness.
0: Yeah. See, I look at this and, and I think don't don't people realize how foolish you're being. Yeah. You know, to the administration. But, you know, I guess maybe people aren't political junkies like like you and I are. And they're just like, well, things are better now for my farm and my business. And, and OK, like they're not just evaluating Trump on his policies. They're just basically like, how does this affect me?
1: Right. So there are a couple of different ways to think about that. Um, So about a little over 10 years ago, Brian Kaplan wrote a really great book called called, uh, The Myth of the Rational Voter. That is an amazing book. It is an amazing book. Um, in it, so a lot of what I said earlier about how people feel about foreigners um, comes from a lot of the stuff he documented, what he calls anti-foreign bias. And people are, for better or for worse, very, 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 very tribal. Um, now the, the modern manifestations of that are probably a lot better than they than they've tended to be historically. Um, the major religion in Alabama is SEC football, and specifically Alabama and Auburn football. That gets started in a couple of months. And you get to see these tribal loyalties on display in what's probably a much better way than outright bloodshed and warfare. But we tend not to trust foreigners because they're they're not part of our tribe. And another set of points that Kaplan makes. First... Um, people may tend to vote their their own self-interest. It turns out there's not really a whole lot of evidence for what's called the self-interested voter hypothesis. People vote, according to Kaplan, for what they believe to be in the common good, but they tend to have very warped ideas about what in fact actually is in the common good. So people tend to think, well, of course we have to have agricultural subsidies because we've got to have food. And if we don't have agricultural subsidies, then we don't have food. Well, turns out that's not true. But studying economics is very, 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 very difficult. I learned this every semester. And um, for a lot of people, it's just a lot easier to kind of indulge what you've already what you've always believed, or what you want to believe, and just kind of cheer for your team. Well, speaking of tribalism. I think it's kind of a nice
0: shift to the conversation and some of the things I had planned for us to talk about. Um, so what what is somebody who is an economic nationalist? Do you, do you have a way of describing
1: what their beliefs or their kind of way of thinking economically is? So there's a really great essay in the Library of Economics and Liberty, Concise Encyclopedia of Economics on fascism, in which it defines fascism as economic nationalism. And when I think of economic nationalism, I think of Sort of a type of chauvinism for the nation and a political preference for stuff produced domestically for the sake of national greatness, whatever national greatness happens to be. So when we say economic nationalism, we say make America great again with steel and aluminum and and whatnot. It's because for whatever reason, steel and aluminum are like these macho industries that if we have really, really big, I don't know, steel and aluminum industries, somehow we win. And I don't know exactly how that's calculated, but I think the economic nationalist looks at big, heavy industry and is proud of it. In much the same way that like we like we would be proud of sending a man to the moon. Hey, folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple podcast or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings help us get the word out. And now let's get back to the show. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: It never occurred to me until you just kind of mentioned it that steel and you know kind of heavy manufacturing is is apparently what what makes us great or some sort of some sort of signal or symbol of of our greatness. Right. That's quite interesting. You know, it's it, we don't we don't pick other things like tourism yeah. or uh, or even for that matter farms. I suppose. I mean, I, we kind of just take it for granted. But uh, yeah, that that's very interesting. So one of the things that kind of defines America is that you know, generally speaking, and of course the, we're painting broad brushstrokes here when I say this, is that we are we like to be a self sufficient kind of kind of crowd. Um, we you know we pride, we have our our origin stories in people coming over here and starting a new life for themselves and doing it all by themselves and you know mm-hmm. I, I don't mean literally individuals doing it but like right. small groups of people doing it you know and yeah. and making making a go at it. Uh, but Self self sustaining is a word. Right. Self reliance uh, yep. and all of those sort of virtues that are just sort of baked into Americanism, uh, if you will. Um, right. I remember once hearing from an economist, uh, I believe it was f- at a fee university, where it basically says, you know what? If America wants to be completely self reliant upon itself, it basically is asking it, telling itself, it wants to be poor. Right. So. It sounds like you agree. So what, why is that? Like, why can't, I mean, it's a big country. we got lots of land. Why can't we just be self-sustaining? I mean, I I'm pretty sure I just read that Texas is now one of the largest oil exporters in the world or like in the very me. top which is like whoa that's crazy uh right. and so anyway why why wouldn't we want to be self reliant i mean that's that's
1: a, that is making america great again i mean that maybe that's at the heart of it well because all the resources that we're talking about have an opportunity cost and we're not the low cost producers of a lot of the things that we like to consume and that that's that's a that's a simple fact that comes from the fact that the united states is a very 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 productive place I think a lot of the, you know, the idea of so national greatness or American independence um, is rooted in like, – I personally don't like to rely on other people. Like I don't like to rely on other people. Um, and I think a lot of people don't like the idea of relying on other people, and therefore they don't like the idea of relying, in quotation marks, on other countries for things like steel and aluminum and – shoes and cars and whatnot people don't like to rely on other countries for things like aluminum or steel or cars or anything like that um in a lot of the same way that most people don't really like to rely on other people for stuff they they, they like they get the sense okay I can take care of myself or we as a country we can take care of ourselves without fully grasping that the best way for us to take care of ourselves might be to trade with others to get the stuff that they're better at producing so, in the United States, for example, we probably don't have a comparative advantage globally in lots of relatively low skill manufacturing tasks. We do have a comparative advantage in financial services, or tourism, or uh, product design, or things like that. To give you an example. Um, a little bit before we taped this, I decided I decided to go see the Meg, which is you know this new movie about a megalodon, like a 90-foot-long shark, and it's just so terrible and so beautiful and such a wonderful film. But um, if you look at the parallels between, say, The Meg and Jaws, so you go back to the 1970s, you go to Jaws, it's all about New England. You watch The Meg and it's about a research, it's obviously standard Hollywood movie, but it's about a research Lab off the coast of China and that's where a good bit of the action takes place and where some of the some of the actors are from. Now, what does this have to do with steel and aluminum? Well, we in the United States, this is the sort of entertainment capital of the world. And part of what Say, Chinese steel producers do with the money they get from selling us steel is they watch movies made in the United States. And this strikes me as a particularly good example since it is a movie that seems, and from what I've read about it, seems um, fairly deliberately produced for uh, to appeal to an international market.
0: I hadn't heard that. That's interesting. that it was that that that's that was what it was produced you know targeted for
1: yeah like well, yeah, after watching it it makes it makes perfect sense cuz a lot of the main characters are are Chinese or Australian and again a lot of the action happens happens near China yeah we we get we get cheap steel the world gets yeah, sharp yeah. movies right it's 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 the circle of life I think I'll take cheap steel over <laughs> shark movies. Well, I mean, our our exports yeah, our exports are, are lower than our imports, so we we do run a trade deficit. But again, um, where a lot of that comes back is in the form of foreign investment in the U.S. Yeah, right. So, wh- I mean, why
0: do people? I think the the other side of this is globalization or like this idea of borderless Mm -hmm. markets. And, you know, I don't find this Mm. idea so threatening uh, because, I mean, you're in Alabama, I'm in Pennsylvania, and we Mm -hmm. pretty much have a free trade agreement. Uh, between the states and we that has worked out extremely well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we want to apply it the, the principles of anything that America is exceptional at, which one of them is, is this uh, at facilitating this, mm-hmm. then we might want to export this idea. Yeah. So why? Why is creating a in effect, not an actual borderless existence,
1: but in effect, a borderless market? Well, see, you have this this organization, doctors without borders. I would love to have business without borders or markets without borders. Um, again, I think a lot of it comes down to simple distrust of the other, and we, which I think, like that's just a fundamental part of human nature um, that I don't know that we can really change, combined with a fi- like a real failure to count the cost when we think about. Um, the different ways that resources get used and the different ways, ways that resources could be used. I think most people's implicit, implicit model of how the global economy works or how economics works is that there are no alternative uses of resources. So if Billy Bob loses his job in the steel mill, he starves to death. There's literally nothing else he can do or there are literally no other opportunities out there that, are, that, that could possibly emerge. Economists sometimes refer to this as the lump of labor fallacy, this idea that there's a certain amount of work to be done in the world. And if someone in China is doing work, that is by definition work that an American can't do. But what we know from what we understand about economic growth is that opportunities are constantly emerging and new opportunities. Are constantly emerging
0: yeah labor is heterogeneous it can change i'm pretty sure i heard that from yes. you in a Mises uh university talk and because <laughs> you like repeated it in your lecture i think uh so i remember m- many hmm. years ago uh hearing you say that and i bring that up a lot when i well not a lot but when i talk to people about this about this topic mm-hmm. um so uh does does trade war ever result in an
1: actual war I don't think so.
0: I mean, can it can it not ratchet up to some like high level where it's like, all right, we're 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 done with this trade business. Let's just go to war.
1: Oh, oh so so, we, so we're, where trade can actually lead to war, or no,
0: the the lack of trade, oh. like a bunch of tariffs, like uh... oh yeah,
1: yeah. So so Bastia famously said, "When goods don't cross borders, armies do." Um, I would have to look. Um, I have to look for specific examples, but my impression is that Bastiat is right—that um, reduction, so collapses in global trade, like kind of what happened in the 1930s after, say, the Smoot-Hawley tariff and whatnot, helped to lay the groundwork for um, for armed conflict. So you have um, something called, something called the capitalist peace theory—the idea that basically countries with relatively free market countries tend not to go to war with each other—and I think that there's a lot to that. I think there's a lot to Bastiat's insider, Bastiat's claim about armies crossing borders when goods don't, that really teaches us something about that
0: so shifting shifting gears just a little bit here and it might be a little bit in toward the historical aspect but um, how do trade wars
1: create pirates so there's a really great article that was published in the Journal of economic history a few years ago about six, about piracy in 16th century China and so first of all it's fantastic that a lot of a lot more Chinese scholars are doing economic history because Imperial China has records that are unbelievable relative to everything that we know about industrial Europe and things like that. But that aside, in the 16th century, the uh, the Chinese empire effectively cut off foreign trade. And they said, OK, we're going to make this illegal. OK, not that big a deal. We can have black markets. So a lot of Chinese merchants in coastal cities and places like that, they just moved to islands not that far from the coast and they just did black market business. And that's fine. And that's wonderful. Um, but then the empire really cracks down on it and says, by God, we're going to shut off international trade. And they really, really, really crack down on it. Well, what do a lot of these merchants do? Well, they've got boats and certain skills. So a lot of them become pirates. And we go from an average of like one. If it, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but an average of like one pirate attack per year to 30 pirate attacks per year. Eventually, eventually, the uh, the Chinese you know, the Chinese imperial um, officials say, okay, yeah, it turns out this isn't really working the way we wanted it to, so we're gonna ease back on this clamp down that we had on free international trade. And then a lot of the pirates, so a lot of the pirates who were formerly merchants, they went back to being merchants. So by trying to make China great again, I guess, by shutting off trade with the outside world, what the imperial officials inadvertently did is it created incentives for people to become pirates. So the markets will exist
0: uh, mm-hmm. to to completely misquote Jeff Goldblum. Uh, <laughs> mar- markets
1: find a way. <laughs> markets do find a way. This is a really, really important an important insight is just because we don't want people to demand something or just because we don't want people to supply something doesn't mean there's not going to be a market for it. So, think about a lot of the things that Christians disapprove of. So, extramarital sex, drugs, things of that nature. Um, There are markets for these things, for better or for worse. And simply saying, we're going to punish you for buying and selling this in markets does not eliminate the fact that there is actually a market for it. And as we very, very, very well know, with respect to things like drug war and whatnot, we have done a heck of a job making all these things worse. So by trying to make China great again, by cutting off international trade, they created pirates.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I hope we don't do that. Uh, you know, that would be that would be pretty scary for the for the tourism industry in the U.S. for for those who want to go to the beach, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it really would be. It really would be. So one of the, one of the things that I thought maybe Trump sort of this silver lining in Trump and his policies might be that the left mm-hmm. would be able to see the light on a few things that libertarians have been screaming about for decades. Mm-hmm. Do you have the same hope? I mean, do you think this is one example where now the left is? Being like, oh, well, yeah, so if we t- if we tax something, you know, people are going to we're going to create markets and it's going to have these bad effects. And then we're going to patch it up with a giveaway of 12 billion dollars and all this. I mean, are, th- are they are they learning any lessons?
1: I wish I could say something like with confidence, but I really don't know. I really don't know. There's. Um a lot of chatter in the the academic left arguing I think against reason that Trump is somehow the the realization of the neoliberal dream and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I don't know that a whole lot of people really get that when you say neoliberal you mean like sort yeah. of like uh, the classical liberal this is what yeah this is what like this this is the the culmination of, of what free marketeers have been dreaming of. Oh yeah. <laughs> And I think that's uh, one. I think that's ridiculous. Um, Two, I think it's one of the books that's really helped me understand this well has been a a book called by Arnold Kling called "The Three Languages of Politics." And so he argues that if you think about liberals, conservatives, and libertarians, liberals see the world as as a struggle between the powerful and the powerless. Conservatives see the world as a struggle between barbarism and civilization. And libertarians see it as a struggle between liberty and power. Wait, actually, I screwed up the, 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 the liberals thing. Um, not powerful, power, powerful and powerless, but between oppressors and oppressed. And given that Trump is rich, my, my sense is that a lot of people see this as the or, and, and he at least talked a good game about deregulation and low taxes, that people see this as the um, sort of like the triumph of free market neoliberalism.
0: Yeah. I don't think they read any true neoliberals if that's really what they think we're after.
1: Well, I'm not even sure what neoliberalism means. I think it's just. Uh, yeah, well, there's that. Well, it's at the risk of being uncharitable. Someone I think someone said it's it's a word. It's a word that people came up with to describe economic ideas they don't understand, but don't approve of. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah,
0: I'd, I agree that 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 could very well be the case. Entirely possible. It's like people, did, you know, just, just using the word fascist all the time because they really mean just bad person well, or or whatever. Even though there's no... in the
1: interest of being equal opportunity about it, um, think about the way that people use the word socialist. Um, so, so let's go back. You know, like I, I'm 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 old enough to remember. Yeah, you know, we had the libertarian moment about ten years ago, ten years ago, eight years ago, things like that, and. Everything that Barack Obama did was called socialist, and so there's a lot of discussion among, you know, economists and libertarian circles saying, okay, no, actually, Obama is not a socialist. If we define socialism correctly as government ownership and control of means of production, then we're doing sort of a rhetorical disservice by referring by by calling Obama a socialist. Indeed, some of those chickens are coming home to roost now with the increased popularity of quote unquote socialism when I think what a lot of people, so a lot of millennials, I would guess, when they hear socialism, they don't think government ownership and control of the means of production. I think they just mean sharing in a big welfare state. Yeah. One big family, kind yeah, of. Yeah, they think Sweden. Yeah, and my goodness, if only we could be more like Sweden in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, you may want to spell out a few examples. I know what you mean by that. So, for our
1: listeners, what are some ways that you think we ought to be more like Sweden, Art? Well, so school choice would be a big one. Um, relatively little market regulation. Um, Sweden, so Sweden, Denmark, Finland, uh, Norway. Tend to be near the top of the economic freedom of the world rankings that are put out by, well, once by the Heritage Foundation, once by the Fraser Institute, and they score very well on things like security of property rights, minimal regulation, things of that nature. So while it's true that maybe they have high taxes and a lot of redistribution, they st- still have. Well, again, school choice in Sweden would be one example yeah. and lots and lots and lots of economic freedom. There's no
0: I think there's no national minimum wage, right? right? Like there might right. be locality. Yeah, there's no. Yeah. So mm-hmm. when anybody says we need to be more like the Scandinavian countries that you can you can sort of start talking to them. Well, is it that you want to give out school vouchers right. or is yeah. it that you want to abolish the minimum wage? Yeah. Oh, it's just healthcare. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, let's do all these other things first, yeah. right? right, right. <laughs> and then, ma- then we'll talk because you don't really—you just like pick the favorite thing that is really popular to talk about now, yeah—and uh, say we want to be like them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'm glad you kind of spelled that out because I think that's a very uh, important point when people bring up the Scandinavian countries because mm-hmm. um, they sure as heck
1: aren't going to bring up Venezuela. True. Very true. So um, yeah. Well, then there's also there's also when we think about Scandinavia, there's a the matter of scale. Um, I think if I remember correctly, I think Denmark's population is roughly the size of metropolitan Atlanta or metropolitan <laughs> Philadelphia. So it's it's yeah. You know what's going to work in a country of five to ten million may not necessarily work in a country of three hundred and twenty million.
0: Yeah, I think Hayek talks a little bit about that yep. uh, in Road to Serfdom. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, th- I don't know if he uses the terms of scalability, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's another podcast. And so, <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. All right. We got two more podcasts with you in the coming years. So, oh, fantastic. Uh, that's great. Thanks for joining us today for uh, talking about the trade wars. And uh, we hope, hope you'll join us again sometime. All right. Absolutely.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you like today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group. You are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian
0: Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.